Welcome to episode 16 of Research in Focus. My name is Gloria Nystrom, and I'm a doctoral student in the Faculty of Education at Simon Fraser University. I will be co-hosting this conversational podcast with Dr. Ina Lee, an assistant professor in the Faculty of Education. The focus of this podcast is to explore why we do the research that we do. Ina, what brought you to your research focus and work? Thanks for your question, Gloria. In terms of my research focus and work, it really is informed by my own lived experiences as a racialized woman in Canada. Um, I turn to what Bilu Mira, who is a transnational feminist scholar says in that we research who we are. When she talks about who we are, she's not referring to identities as essentialized, but really more so who we are in relation to how we've been socialized, the lived experiences that we have, and how we walk through this world in ways that might be different than others. So in terms of who I am, I am born and raised in Vancouver, Canada, and I am a woman of color. I am of Chinese ancestry. And so those lenses will always inform the work that I do in ways that are either subtle or overt. Um, in my research, I am looking at second language learning, specifically English as an additional language in Canada. And so living on the Pacific Rim, many of the participants, the vast majority of them that I work with in EAL in Canada are of Chinese or Asian ancestry. And so that's what brought me to my work, especially in uh, this field of applied linguistics and second language education. What really solidified things uh, was my many years working as an EAL educator um, in Vancouver, specifically working with new immigrants, refugees, and minoritized students. And what I noticed as a teacher oftentimes uh, was both uh, what some would call microaggressions, but which I would just call fundamentally racism. And this is an interesting concept within Canada because we have a history of multiculturalism. We have a history of a tolerant uh, Canadian mosaic, but that just is not the case for many Canadians, um, whether you were born or raised or whether you came here as a refugee or as an immigrant. Um, what many people in Canada don't realize is that the history of immigration is very fraught, especially for racialized people. And how that then plays out in the classroom is no different than the overall racism that we see in society. School is a microcosm of uh, the society. And so if we are recognizing inequities in society, I do feel that it is incumbent on us to think about then what might be the impacts of this in our classroom. So that's what brought me to my own research focus and work. Um, but Gloria, I'd be really interested in finding out more about um, you as well. Um, what brought you to your research focus and your work? My research is very, very deeply personal, and it's very much informed by my personal narratives, my stories and experiences of acculturation and assimilation into growing up and living and being educated in Vancouver. 
I am a second generation Chinese Canadian. My parents came from mainland China when they were quite young. And like many people I've grown up with, language was a very big piece early on. I was exposed to quite a few of my maternal and the paternal languages of my mom and dad. I grew up listening to my grandparents' dialect of Longdu and also my dad's dialect or language of Zhongshan. And so when I started school, it was a very traumatic experience. So when I read research, there are many, many aha moments that resonate. And it was a challenging time for my identity as I reflect back because my mom and dad would be quite frustrated with all of us as children. And she would call us Buntong Fan, which is like half Chinese, half English. You guys don't speak Chinese. We were ridiculed all the time. My grandparents, my aunts, my uncles would kind of mock us. But again, English was the privileged language and I embraced it wholeheartedly. And I think my background resonates also because of where we are, because social and politically, I grew up in Vancouver, but I am part of a much larger system of living in a bilingual and bicultural country. And I ended up embracing English and French, and I ended up becoming an actual French language teacher and later French immersion teacher, which I think is, is a very interesting dichotomy because you grow up a certain way and you don't actually pay much attention to your home language. And there was a pivotal moment which actually had consolidated my interest in my current research, which is on race and race racialization practices in schools and also ethnic identity and critical pedagogies. Back in 2016, I started to spend a lot of time with my father. I started working on learning Spanish. And at one point he kind of said to me, why don't you learn Chinese? It was a huge aha moment. I thought, he's absolutely right. Why am I I'm listening to his radio? And it always had Chinese uh, just radio stations. And so I started thinking and, and I did a lot of reading. And as I read Lily Wong Fillmore's article, when learning a second language means losing the first, it totally overwhelmed me because I thought, this is exactly what has happened to me. And no one is ever aware of this at the time. And I thought I need to produce research that will at least engage people's lived experiences, connect people's lived experiences and educate and inform and let people at least know that once you lose that language piece, you lose more than your, your Chinese traditions and your culture. I lost a huge part of my identity. I could not communicate for years with both my parents. We basically knew how to respond to commands and we would listen and we would always speak back to them in English. So my focus on race and racialization and language ideologies is very much informed by my personal experiences. That's really interesting, Gloria. Um, it actually makes me think um, a little bit deeper that, yes, so much of our lived experiences, we feel that it might be in particular moments that these aha moments, as you pointed out, but then when we unpack it further, there's so many more deep-seated 
you know, longer kind of histories in the making. And so, you know, you're uh, sharing of being ridiculed by your family um, absolutely reminds me, yeah, that, that was pretty similar actually to my experience. But then it made me think, however, to being ridiculed even on the playground or being ridiculed uh, in elementary school and in high school. And that ridicule uh, being about uh, basically my phenomenology, basically you don't look like other students. So I went to a very predominantly white elementary school particularly. And so when you're that small minority, I mean, these ideas of what becomes much much more salient in relation to otherness. Um, so physical appearance is the biggest one. And we know that this happens in Canada, you know, all the time, you know, where, you know, people, for example, I'll be walking down Robson Street, which is um, a very, major um, metropolitan shopping area in downtown Vancouver, and I'll have a car full of uh, white folk who drive by, roll down the window, and yell at me to go back to China. All of these lived experiences, making up who we are, and the importance of, you know, what do we mean when we're just talking about you know, as applied linguists, that it's not just about language, but language is fundamentally tied to identity is such an important one. And this idea that who are multicultural and multilingual, um, understanding, having that perspective, um, having a very different um, connection to uh, this, the importance of language, um, especially as immigrants, um, just like my parents as well. Um, and as children being so wrapped up in belonging and notions of belonging, I think are so important for us to think about. Um, because, you know, as you pointed out, this is, this is, as Stuart Hall says, the last to know about the water or the fish, right? And so if we are these fish, we are living in these discourses and living in these inequities um, without fully uh, understanding or being aware of what these mean until, you know, we might read in your example, Lily Wong Fillmore, or I might read Stuart Hall, and then we realize, wow, what what do we mean when we're talking about language? Because we're realizing as applied linguists, language is more than just the words. Language is very much um, central to who, how we see ourselves, how others see us, um, you know, and, and that's such an important aspect that oftentimes is, is kind of missed, especially when we talk about ESL. Both of us are in, in ESL. And oftentimes teachers will say, you know, I'm not an English teacher, or this isn't about language, this is about science, or this is about um, math, or this is about, but in actual fact, um, all of our meaning making in the world is through language. Um, so it's not surprising. And it's uh, that the research when we when applied linguistics research, particularly critical oriented, um, will say, we're not just talking about language. We're talking about thinking, ideologies, you know, and, and so I think that that's a really, so thank you for bringing that point up. I think that that's, an, that's a really important point. I agree. And I think what makes me so passionate about looking into these issues of identity as related to linguistics practices is that it gives you a framework similar to what you just said. I've been told by people on the street corners of Robson and Granville, oh, 
you don't speak English or where are you from? Oh, your English is so good. And it, it's, it's having that framework. And then I, I read up and I'm like, yeah, I've been treated like a perpetual foreigner all my life of who I am. And similar to your experience, I went to an elementary school where I was the only Chinese or Asian student and children made fun of me. I couldn't, I couldn't pronounce a lot of words and they would mock me and they would laugh. You know, and of course, by that time, you know exactly what's going on. Our past is still so relevant in shaping our present, which brings me kind of to the next question of what population group do you feel your research is focused on and why? And what do we know about current research and literature in this field? The research that I've conducted is primarily in post-secondary level or tertiary level, so university um, or adults specifically. My doctorate was fundamentally based in an EAP program, English for Academic Purposes. English for Academic Purposes is uh, ESL that's specifically either disciplinary oriented um, towards um, higher learning, uh, post-secondary, or for uh, overall academic purposes. So the vast majority of my research has been in that population. Um, I'm interested in that population group specifically because I have found in my career that much of the research and education that is done, whether it's in ESL or otherwise, is in K to 12. And um, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, when we think about education, we think about school, um, school as in formalized um, schooling. However, in my experience and in, in the epistemological framing and ontological framing that I come from, you know, educative space are everywhere. Educative spaces are, you know, on streets. When people yell at you to go back to your own country, for example, that is an educative space. So I am interested in, in really um, contributing to research um, that is lesser done, uh, so on adult populations, because um, adult ESL is a very large proportion of uh, second language education, um, particularly even at SFU, arguably, um, when we think about English language education, Everyone to some degree is an English language learner, whether you're learning English as an additional language, if you're multilingual, but even, for example, quote unquote, native, quote unquote, uh, English speakers, they're learning the English of the disciplines, they're learning English of biology, they're learning English of history, they're learning English of math. These are not the Englishes that they speak outside. Um, so this uh, of, of the university walls. Um, so this idea of, you know, what do we mean by educator spaces and how can we expand education, I think is really important to me. So I did fundamentally want to um, address uh, adult ESL as a lesser research group generally. I also want to focus on um, adults, particularly because oftentimes the theories that relate to children and education don't necessarily map on in the same ways for adults, particularly when we're looking at socio-political issues in relation to education. Um, adults are uh, have lived in this world. They are informed by very different lived experiences. They have a very different level of meta-awareness and meta-understanding. Um, also, sociopolitics such as citizenship, 
belonging, uh, nation, the, the mapping of nation state identities, um, particularly what does it mean to be a Canadian citizen? What does it mean to have to belong or behave in ways that society um, expects? Uh, it maps on very, very differently for adults. So I do feel that it's important for us um, to understand how that is much more nuanced or how it can be much more nuanced, especially when we're talking about gatekeeping mechanisms. Oftentimes, um, a lot of uh, researchers, applied linguists, um, such as Monica Heller um, in Canada, uh, her language po linguistic policy and language policy research says, the two biggest regimenters of language and identity are schools and uh, government. And so what does this mean then for uh, for adults, particularly in the ways in which education and the government regulate particular identities through language, with language, their language, quote unquote, um, the language of the nation state and everything that is indexicalized under that. So this is why I chose to focus on um, adults specifically. So the second part of your question, Gloria, of what do we know about current research and literature in this field? Um, I'm very thankful that uh, there have been uh, critical applied linguists such as Riku Kubota, um, such as uh, Nelson Flores, Jonathan Rosa, uh, Sue Motha, Monka Varghese, um, and the sister scholars in uh, uh, which who are uh, made up of uh, a group of um, women of color um, and women, white women uh, allies. Uh, and they've done a lot of really important um, research, empirical research um, on how oppressions such as race and gender, religious affiliations or sexual orientation, how these play out in ESL specifically, have really important implications for understanding in much more complex ways the intersections of marginalization and oppression in English language education. Uh, more specifically, um, there has been much research since the 1990s on the mapping out of English as a language and whiteness. So the fact is that historically, English as an additional language or English as a second language uh, started out as a missionary project. And we also know that missionary projects um, are fundamentally colonial projects. So uh, very white supremacist projects um, that are about educating the savage, um, quote unquote, uh, for lack of a better term. This is the terminologies that are historically often used. And even though we don't talk about it in that way, um, much English. Uh, as an additional language education is still very much carries those resonances of English as a superior language, English as the, the language carries a much more cultural capital and symbolic capital. So I draw a lot from critical applied linguists who do look at how English um, as an indexicalizer of white supremacy primarily in relation to language and power, how then that plays out within the classroom context. And we oftentimes know uh, from the empirical research 
that uh, basically students are seen as, as you pointed out, this perpetual foreigner in your own lived experiences, or the other, this perpetual other, the non-belonging. And so a lot of my research has built on those kinds of understandings, those critical understandings. So my research pretty much mirrors much of the previous research, and it was, in my case, a lot of my research in the classroom has shown how things like culture, what are, what are things like in your country, or um, what do you do or your people do, all of these things under these guises of common sense ideas of culture, or other things of this you, who do we mean by the you versus me, are indexicalizations of otherness, are of perpetual foreigner, and fundamentally, are ways in which, as Marcus and Moya talk about, how we do race. So how do we do race in classrooms? We do race by not talking about race and using proxies such as culture, um, such as language, such as, um, or even words like ethnicity, even though they have their a very particular meaning theoretically in common sense discourses, pretty much what people are talking about is they're actually talking about race. And this, these go to questions that you have brought up that people have asked you and, and myself too, as you know, where are you from? Uh, you speak English so well. So we know that in these cases, they're not asking us about language per se. They are really asking about our foreignness, about our otherness. And this happens in ESL classrooms, and these are fundamentally connected to, and we can't separate them from the kinds of discourses that then happen in English language education if, quote unquote, native speakers of English, such as you and me, are getting these questions, right? And so these are questions that we can map on to understandings also of English language education for people whose first languages are not necessarily English. So all of the ideologies and epistemologies that are connected to those kinds of common sense um, stereotypes will play out. And so, and these, this is exactly what all the research, uh, much of the research shows that these absolutely do. And, um, and so theories such as ratiolinguistics, um, specifically in um, applied linguistics from Nelson Flores and Jonathan Rosa specifically, but all of the research of Ryuka Kubota, epistemological racism, how that plays out in applied linguistics is uh, what informs my research and what my research has also shown specifically in a Canadian context in ESL education in Canada. But I'm also interested in uh, learning more about your research, Gloria, uh, because I also know that you are looking at these kinds of frameworks and these theories, but you're actually interested in uh, school children. So can you tell me a little bit more about your research and what population groups you're focused on? Why have you focused on those population groups? And what, from your understanding of the literature, uh, do we know so far um, in relation to the research on your population group in English language education in Canada? I have specifically chosen to focus on the Chinese Canadian population in Canada, and more specifically in my actual research on the use of Chinese Canadian background for several reasons. The main reason is the more I looked into current research, the more I realized that a lot of practices and methodologies still use aggregated data, meaning that Asian studies 
is lumped together with many, many, many groups. The Asian, Asian American Pacific Islanders report of 2021 in the States just recently reported that of the Asian population, there are 48 different ethnic groups, all of different histories, different backgrounds, different languages. And similar in Canada, the most recent information I was able to find was in the 2016 Census Canada report. They reported 21 different groups make up the Asian umbrella group. And so it struck me as important that we really focus on what a lot of researchers acknowledge and a lot of scholars acknowledge is an underrepresented group. Even in a lot of American studies that have to do with ethnic identity or model minority or honorary white research, they often will lump Asians with Latinos and Blacks. And I think that that gives them some background, but it doesn't really address all the different, different nuances that are specific to the Asian population in both Canada and the US. I've chosen youth also because youth is a very pivotal moment for identity negotiation. It is a time when there is a transition from childhood to adulthood, and there really is not very much research in both countries. In particular to Canada, there's only a small number of researchers, such as Kabayashi and Preston in a study in 2014. And then Dan Su has done quite a lot of work on Chinese Canadian youth and habitus and racialization in 2015, 2016, and 2019. But other than that, there really is a shortage of any kind of research that focuses on Chinese Canadian youth in particular. And even overall in the field of identity research, most of the research has focused on ethnic identity using a lot of psychosocial measures. And a lot of the research is quite dated. They, they often will use or are grounded in um, Feeney's work from the 1990s and 1960s, uh, Erickson's work also in the 1970s. So there is a very, a paucity, there is a paucity of current research that actually focus on identity and language practices of youth. And in particular to Canada, there is very little at, at the moment going in. So that is the main reason I've chosen to focus on that population group. Also within that population group, I feel that Asian Canadians or Chinese Canadians in, in particular are from a very different geographical and political landscape. Because of different policies such as the Official Languages Act, which recognize Canada as being bilingual and bicultural in French and English, and then the Multiculturalism Act in 1988, there is not a lot of support for heritage languages. Heritage languages have always been just a little codicil add-on. Yes, we are a diverse and multicultural country, but there's very little research that actually has looked into ethnic identity and very little research that actually targets sense of belonging, issues of citizenship, issues of belonging. And so that's the main reason why I focused on that particular population group. And I focused on the lack of research there has been for that particular population group. So 
You had talked about the paucity of research, and absolutely, I agree that uh, unfortunately, within the Canadian context specifically, this research is very slim, unfortunately, which is oftentimes why we often we have to sometimes draw on the American uh, research to help to illuminate and show these kinds of patterns, ideology, and how they play out. Um, so, but beyond, uh, you know addressing this paucity of research. What other contributions are you hoping that your research will make? I'm hoping to use research that uses critical frameworks and autoethnography. Um, there's very little, if any, research right now that actually frames research in the Asian critical framework, which specifically addresses issues of Asianization, which refers to stereotypical labeling such as model minority, yellow peril, honorary whites. And in my, my proposal, I would like to see other, other terms such as smartness included in that Asianization. What I also really like about the Asian critical framework is it actually targets how important narratives, past, present, and current, and social, political, and geographical spaces are an integral part of identity research. And it really looks at reconstructing what we know and saying, listen, this has happened. This is part of Chinese Canadian history. We need to address it. We need to recognize it and we need to implement it and, and put it into practices that will hopefully eventually build theory uh, that will inform policies that also impact children and their, their identities in schools. Also, I, I really have been embracing the autoethnographic framework and I quote quite heavily and base quite a lot of my work on Botner and Ellis's work where they believe that the use of autoethnography, which is using your narratives and framing them as reclaiming our past and reconstructing all of our experiences, good or bad, in meaningful ways. Because I think that all the narratives of every single Chinese Canadian either growing up or living in Canada or having lived in Canada and moved away speak volumes. And they offer what Botner likes to call dialogic truths or emotional truths. And they're truths based on our experiences. They're not actual truths that everybody else would follow. But I think that those kinds of narratives in research would really offer a framework and validity to people's narratives and really start to shape policies that have to do with race and racialization with schools. And as a lot of stereotypical labels such as, quote, model minority, end quote, exist and continue to exist within schools. It gives schools and institutions almost a pass. They can use a lot of disciplinary actions to say, well, these are wonderful students. We should always use them as exemplary models of how everybody should act. And that in itself causes a huge amount of racialization. That contributes, in my opinion, to huge paradoxical spaces for, for youth and for students because they are torn in wanting to follow the institutional disciplinary action and, and achieve what they can, but they are also limited 
to those spaces because they aren't allowed to, if they do deviate, then there are definite consequences and definite things such as what Foucault would call punish. And punish could lead to like some studies say shame, family shame, reluctance to speak out, and reluctance to actually step outside of this little box that people have put them in. So I'm hoping that using autoethnography will give a framework and using a critical framework will really bring the stories and the needs and the challenges of Chinese Canadian youth and, and, and beyond to the forefront to say, listen, these are real life stories and we really don't need to look much further than to all the recent COVID-19 pandemic that we're all aware of, where all of a sudden a lot of, a lot of students and a lot of people are being racialized and they are suffering different kinds of microaggressions and they're not really being addressed. They are being reported, but no one's really talked about the impact on their identities and the impact long-term. And I would like to see that issues of, of that nature also be addressed in future research study in itself. And going back to you, Ina, what do you hope to contribute to this field of research? Fundamentally, my hope is to show that race matters. Race matters in ESL education. Race matters in education generally. And so I'm hoping to contribute to much more complexly or much more nuanced theorizations of the connections of race to English language learning um, and more broadly to education in Vancouver or to Canada, multicultural, quote unquote, multilingual Canada. I have fundamentally drawn from intersectional frameworks of sociology, transnational feminist frameworks, um, as well as anti-racist education and anti-racist teacher education to look at how race is not something that people have, but race is what people do. Um, they do it through asking questions like, how would you do it in your country? Or what do people think about in your country? Or they do it through, your English is not good enough because you have not achieved this score on a TOEFL score. Or they do it through saying that your, I don't understand your essay or I don't understand what you're writing because of these grammar points, which are really much more about um, language aesthetics or rather than actual intelligibility of understanding what people have to say. We do it through saying, I can't understand what this person is saying because of their accent. Or what do you say, this person has such a heavy accent, you know, where rather linguistic, sociolinguistic research will actually show that accent is much more about phenomenologies and people's appearance. It's just as much about that as it is actually about any perceivable, real linguistically perceivable phenomena. I would say that that's what I'm hoping to contribute um, because oftentimes, um, again, going back to teacher education or education generally, it's just about language without recognizing or being open and, and honest to ourselves that it's so much more than language that we're talking about. This is fundamentally about how we understand and make sense of people 
um, how we make sense of the world, what our beliefs are about particular people or our beliefs are about what is true, right, or better in this world. And so I do want to look at the impacts of that, not focus on Canadian niceness or Canadian multiculturalism, because so much harm can be done uh, when we hold on to this belief of Canadian niceness or this, you, you know, utopian kind of idealized mythic of um, Canadian multiculturalism. It doesn't take the empirical research um, in Canada to tell us that there's something more to language education. And I think it's important for us to really be thoughtful about what we're doing as educators that we may not, quote unquote, be intending. Um, Because oftentimes some of the biggest harms, the most significant harms in education happen, even when we don't intend for them to happen. And so this is why in critical teacher education, um, in the courses that I teach and the research that I do um, on critical teacher education is drawing from Kevin Kumashiro's learning to teach intentionally as well as unintentionally and um, understanding that oftentimes it's the things that we don't do and we don't say that teach our students the most about the world about their place in the world and um, what we or society thinks is their place in the world. So I am hoping that fundamentally that my research will have an impact on much more critical praxis in education and teacher education specifically, um, because I do feel that um, often teacher education is focused so much on the pragmatics of how do we do something? How does, what does this look like on Monday morning without asking the questions of why do we teach in this way? So this is Bonnie Norton's movement from teacher education questions such as what do we teach and why do we teach it? to much more critical questions about why do we teach what we teach and why do we teach it the way that we teach it? Um, Because I do feel that that's a very, very different conversation in teacher education. And especially when we look at how do we teach race without ever saying race um, in education is a conversation that in both pre-service and in-service education, um, not just in ESL, but in teacher education, not just in ESL teacher education, but in teacher education more broadly. So this is what I'm hoping. I would like to conclude this podcast by thanking Research and Focus, providing Ina and myself the space to share some of our thoughts and some of our interest levels with the public and I'd like to end by thanking our listeners and hoping that you found this session informative.